Welcome to the Fairfax Church Podcast. We're a community in Fairfax, Virginia, following Jesus. We upload new messages every week, and to learn more about us, visit us at fairfax.cc. Enjoy the message. All right, you can have a seat. Uh, we're going into the second week of a series that we started last week called on Esther, on the book of Esther. But before we jump into that, just a couple things I wanted to uh, just celebrate and uh, kind of a challenge I want to put uh, in front of you. One is that when we got to the end of last year, we talked about the importance of kind of our year in giving and how our year in giving uh, positioned us as a church to finish strong in 2023 and also uh, to kind of have some momentum going into 2024 for what God has called us to do. And you responded in just an amazing way. God always provides and, and he always, almost always, he goes over and above whatever we could imagine or, 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 or expect. And he did it again for us as a church. Our year in giving uh, at the end of 2023 in the month of December was over $1 million dollars. And we should just celebrate that because that's a huge, that's a huge provision. I think it was actually closer to 1.1 million. And it really gives us momentum going into the next year because God is doing some amazing things in this place. Uh, we're growing as a congregation. New uh, families and individuals are coming into the life of this church every week on a weekly basis. Uh, lives are being change, relationships are being uh, healed. God is just doing some amazing, amazing stuff. And um, I want to tell you that one of the things that, that maybe you could help with all of this as, as God continues to bring more and more folks into this place, um, our parking lot, praise the Lord, our parking lot is, is uh, getting to the max. And we have, on many Sundays, we, we don't, we have very few spaces left. Or in many cases, we have no spaces left and people don't have a place to park. And so uh, I'm asking, anyway, I sent an email out on Saturday, but I, I just wanted to remind you of this uh, today as you think about next week and the weeks that follow. We're looking for parking missionaries. We're looking for parking missionaries that are willing to leave the comforts of their own parking country that they're in right now and go to a far away land. Uh, actually, it's about 300 uh, yards down the road at Trinity Christian School who has opened up about 100 plus spaces for us and provided shuttle buses for us so that, that folks can park there, get a shuttle, be brought right to uh, the front door here at Fairfax. And so uh, if you would be willing uh, to do that, that would be awesome. And uh, you can start uh, next week with that. We uh, would uh, really, really appreciate it. It would make space here in our parking lot for uh, new people that, that God continues to bring every Sunday into this place. All right, like I said, we're in the second week of our study in the book of, of Esther. And I want to just start today with a little review of, of kind of what we talked about last week and what was dealt with in chapters one and two of Esther. So this is just a little bit of review, maybe for some of you that 
weren't here last week, didn't hear the message last week, or uh, you weren't paying attention last week. Whatever, whatever the reason is. Uh, so the book of Esther, it, it follows the uh, Israelites who uh, did not go back to Jerusalem after 70 years or so of exile, of captivity in Babylon. Uh, a few years before Zerubbabel led uh, the first group of Israelites back to Jerusalem, Babylon was actually conquered by Persia, which was like the new uh, rising superpower in the area. And Esther's parents were among those exiles that decided not to go back, even though uh, the king of Persia, Cyrus at that point, had given them permission to go back to Jerusalem, they were among those who decided, no, this is kind of our new home. This is our new land. We're going to, we're going to um, make our future here in Persia. And so they're part of the group that stayed. Uh, so Esther was born in Persia. She was raised in Persia, but her parents died when she was a little girl. And her cousin, Mordecai, uh, Mordecai uh, took her in to his home and raised her basically as his own daughter. And the king of Persia now is a guy by the name of Xerxes. And as we talked about last week, Xerxes is this, this arrogant guy, this, uh, this uh, quick-to-respond guy, this impulsive guy. And uh, we're told in chapter 1 that he throws this banquet for all of his officials, which are all guys, all of his officials, and it's like a week-long drunk fest. It's, it's this week-long banquet, all the food that you can eat, all the alcohol that you can drink, and uh, not surprisingly, uh, Xerxes gets plastered, he gets drunk along with everyone else at the banquet, and he summons, in his drunkenness, he summons his queen at that time, who's named Vashti, to basically come to this drunk fest and parade around in front of hundreds of, of drunken guys. And to her credit, Queen Vashti refuses to do that. And in response, she is stripped of her crown and she's banished from the palace. And since now one of his queens or his queen has been banished, now Xerxes has to find another queen. So he, he issues this decree that is basically the establishment of an international beauty contest to find his next queen. And uh, Esther is like one of, of a thousand or so uh, women that are brought in to Susa, to the capital city. Uh, they call it the bachelor. And anyway, a bunch of them come in and they vie basically uh, for the position of queen. And when Esther meets the queen, she is favored more than anyone else. So the king marries Esther, makes her, uh, the king uh, marries Esther, makes her his queen. And so this little orphan girl from a persecuted religious minority becomes the second most powerful, influential, uh, wealthiest person in the land. Now, all that takes place in chapters 1-2. It's, again, fascinating. I said this last week. Fascinating, fascinating book. If you've not read Esther, I encourage you to read it. encourage you to go back, read chapters 1 and 2. There's a lot in there that even I wasn't able to, to cover. Now, as we move to chapters 3 and 4, we find out that there is this, this intriguing plot, this, this uh, 
this plot that is taking place to basically kill all the Jews in Persia. And the plot is driven by a man by the name of Haman. And Haman has been elevated to a position in the palace where he is over all of the other officials in the palace. And part of his new title and his new position now is that when everyone sees Haman, that they have to honor him, they have to kneel before him and honor him. And uh, Mordecai, again, Esther's cousin who raised her, refuses to do that for all kinds of reasons, uh, some religious in the sense I'm not going to bow before anyone other than before God himself. And so he lets everyone know that, that he's a Jew and that he refuses to kneel down to Haman. And this infuriates Haman, who decides not only that he wants to kill Mordecai, but he wants to kill all of the Jews who are living in Persia. And so Haman approaches the king, and this, this is what he says uh, to the king. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest. It has nothing to do with the king, by the way. He's just using the king to get his own agenda done. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver in the royal treasury for the men who carry out this mission. Now, here's the thing that's interesting about the dynamic of what's going on. At this point, King Xerxes has no idea that Esther, his wife, his queen, is part, is a member of the group that Haman wants to destroy. He has no idea. She has intentionally hidden that from him. She has intentionally hidden her, her, her religion, her faith, her uh, ethnicity, she, is, she has hidden all of that from everyone. So this is how King Xerxes responds. He says to Haman, keep the money and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day, this is evil stuff. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the kings, satraps, the governors, and the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. And these were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. And dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jews young and old, women and little children, on a single day. All is supposed to take place on a single day. That basically everyone in the country is being mobilized. And we've seen this in different form or fashion take place, this kind of genocide that has taken place in lots of different ways throughout the history of humankind. And that's what's happening here. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods, to take their stuff as well. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. 
So they would be ready to take action. They would be ready to, to inflict harm and death on their neighbor. So that they would be ready for that day. Now, awful, awful, awful plot. And when Mordecai finds out about it, he immediately uh, puts on sackcloth and, and covers himself in ashes and goes into mourning. And he positions himself at the, the king's gate. Now, the king's gate was not the gate to the city. It was the gate to the palace. And you need to understand a little bit of how the city was laid out to understand the importance of that. So Susa was the capital city of Persia. And inside the city of Persia, on the western side of the city, there was a hill. And on that hill, about 120 feet up, was the, the palace and the palace complex. It was actually like a little city within a city. Like the palace was, was self-contained and lots of, people, uh, lots of people lived there. Not only the king and the queen lived there, all of the officials that served the palace, that served the king and the queen, uh, all of the officials, all the administration, if you think about like our government, uh, all of Congress, uh, the executive branch, all of that, all of those folks lived in that complex. And that's why Mordecai has positioned himself in sackcloth and ashes at the gate right outside the palace complex because Esther is inside that complex and he's wanting to get the attention of Esther. He doesn't have access to her. Even though he raised her, he doesn't have access to her and he's wanting to get the attention of Esther. Now, while he's out there, a guy by the name of Hathich comes out. One of, he's one of the officials who lives in the palace complex. And he comes out, he sees Mordecai, and Mordecai gives him a copy of the edict that I don't think has gone public, public yet, but somehow Mordecai has gotten a copy of that edict that's been issued by the king. And he tells him that he has to get this edict to, to, uh, to Esther so she can see this evil thing that is about to happen, and she can use her unique position. She has a unique position in the palace, so she can use her unique position in the palace to stop this horrible thing from happening to her people, people that are outside the palace. That's, that's what he's doing. Now, here's the interesting thing about Esther at this point. And sometimes we because of um, the boldness and the courage of Esther, we kind of, kind of run past this first part uh, that we see in chapters one and two. We really don't know at this point Esther's relationship with God uh, because it, it doesn't appear at this point to be very strong. She's, what we do know, she's not a practicing Jew. She's hidden all of that. She's not a practicing Jew. She's hidden her religious identity. So she's not like Daniel, for instance. Daniel, you know, was uh, public. He embraced his religious identity. He went public with his faith, even though it meant being thrown into the lion's den, very public with his identity, very public with his faith. 
even though his life was on the line. It's like, I trust God in this. I'm going to declare who I am. This is my identity as part of the people of God. Esther doesn't do this. She has hidden her religious identity. She has broken a number of Mosaic laws, and she has compromised herself on numerous occasions in her rise to power, in her getting to this point where she's gotten to in the palace. So in short, Esther has kind of gotten caught up in her new career, her new status in life, her new standard of living, and she's not really in the yes position to God at this point in her life. And yet, here's what's interesting. Even though Esther is really not in the yes position to God at this point, she's really not living out her faith. She's really not living out God's best for her life. She's really struggling at some level, even with her own identity, all of that. Still, Mordecai reaches out to her because Mordecai is convinced that God can still use Esther. Even though Esther is not like where she needs to be in terms of like her faith, that God can still use her. It's this great reminder that God doesn't just use um, religious people, church people. He doesn't just use people who are at a great point in their life spiritually. He doesn't just use people who are who are living out the life that God created them to live, that God, because God is God, God can use absolutely anyone. And it's also a great reminder that it's never too late to be used by God. That's one of the things that we see in, in the book of Esther is we see, and I'll talk about it a little bit more later, we see the transformation that takes place in Esther's life. The Esther of chapters three and four and what follows is different than the Esther of chapter one and chapter two. There's transformation that takes place in her life. And this is a great reminder that it's never too late for any of us. It is never too late to be used by God. It, it may be up to this point for some of us, that are here, some of us that are listening online, it may be that up to this point in your life that your life hasn't always reflected God's best uh, for your life. It, it may be that you've made some, some really stupid decisions at some point in your life. It may be that you've compromised some things to, to get to where you are, to get to the position where you are. Maybe you've compromised uh, time that you should be spending with your family. Maybe you've compromised time that you should be spending with God. Maybe you've, you've gotten way too busy in your pursuit of your role in the palace to, to really give attention to the things that are, that are most important. And so there's been some compromise that has taken place in your life. Maybe your priorities haven't always aligned with God's priority. Like what, whatever it is, that it may be that up to this point, there have been some things you go, yeah, that probably doesn't reflect God's best for my life. That doesn't mean that God is done with you. That doesn't mean that it's too late to really make a difference for the kingdom. That doesn't mean that because of what's happened up to this point in your life that you've got to settle for, for God's plan B 
Like, you know, I know I've made some mistakes. I know that I haven't always had the right priorities. I know that there are some things that have happened that have caused some damage to myself and some damage to others. And so um, I guess the, the, the best that I can hope for is just that I will experience God's plan B for my life. And what we're reminded of here and we're reminded of in Scripture over and over and over again is that there is no plan B, that God always has whatever has happened up to this point in our lives, there is always and only plan A for us, the plan that God has for our lives to use us in whatever ways that he wants to use us. Your life can still have a huge impact for the kingdom. God can still use you to bring heaven to earth. But for that to happen, you have to embrace why you are in the palace and who put you there. Why you are in the palace and who put you there. The reason that God is, is desiring to use Esther at this point in her life is because Esther is in the palace. She's in a place where she has levers to pull. She's in a place where she has influence, that she can influence others. She, she is in a place where she's positioned to make a difference. And to a very real degree, that's true for every single one of us, that all of us are are in the palace, so to speak. All of us are in the palace. God has positioned all of us to have a kingdom impact. God has given all of us some level of influence, some level of resources and giftedness and talents and passions to advance the kingdom. All of us, all of us are in the palace. The question is, what are we going to do with our position in the palace. Are we going to use our position in the palace just to advance our own agenda? Are we going to use our position in the palace just to maintain our lifestyle? Are we going to use our position in the palace to guard against anyone threatening our position in the palace? Or are we going to use our position in the palace to serve those who are outside the palace? to serve those who are vulnerable, to serve those who are hurting, to serve those who have not perhaps connected the dots, to serve those who are in need of help, to serve those who need an advocate, to serve those who, who need the voice of someone else. Like, like how will we use the position that God has given us in the palace? It's interesting, I was just thinking about, you know, I, you can't help but, Think about political stuff right now because it's just like in front of us all the time. And we tend to go after politicians all the time because it, it seems like most of the time all their energy is just spent on maintaining their position in the palace, right? Like oftentimes the goal really for politicians doesn't seem to be about serving. The goal just seems to be about getting reelected. But the reason, I'm convinced, the reason that we tend to focus on politicians, the reason that we tend to kind of, you know, look 
to them is, is because it's like low-hanging fruit. We, we focus on politicians because they are such an easy target. Their palace is just so visible. And what it takes to stay in the palace is so much in the public's eye. We see it in the news all the time. But the reality is that all of us have our palaces. Some of us, some big palaces, sometimes they are not so big palaces, but all of us have our palaces. And the question that we have to constantly ask ourselves before we get focused on everyone else's palace and, and what they're doing to try to keep their position in the palace, the question that we have to constantly ask ourselves is why has God put me in this place? Why has God put me in the palace that he's put me in? Why has God given me this position? Why has God given me these resources that I have? Why has God given me these successes that I've experienced? Why has God given me this platform that I have? Is it just to advance my own agenda or is there something more? Now, at first glance, or actually at first, Esther isn't sure that she wants to use her position, her unique position in the palace to help those outside the palace, to help those who are at risk, to help those who are vulnerable, to those, help those whose lives are in danger. Look at her first response to Mordecai's request. Verse 9, chapter 4. Uh, Hathich went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. And then, this is her first response. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, well, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. And that... Uh, is that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and to spare his life. But then she, and, and then she adds to this interesting thing that we're going to talk about what she means by this. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. In other words, Esther is saying that going to the king could it could cost her everything, that it could cost her her position, it could cost her all the things that are hers because she lives in the palace, because of what the palace represents for her. It could even cost her her life. And she's not sure that she's ready to put all of that, not just her life at risk, but, but her lifestyle at risk and, and, and the privileges that she has in the palace at risk. She's not sure that she wants to put all of that at risk. And she's not even sure that it would be helpful because it's been 30 days. That's where the 30 days comes in. It's been 30 days since the king has even called her into his presence. And usually for the queen, she is in the presence of the king way more frequently than that. So she's not even sure that she's still in good standing with the king at this point. So she could lose everything and it not even accomplish what she wants it to accomplish, not even accomplish what Mordecai wants it to accomplish. 
And so Mordecai hears that. And this is Mordecai's response. All this is going back and forth between this kind of courier that's going inside and outside from the king's gate, outside the palace to the palace courts to the palace where Esther is. And this is Mordecai's response. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. You tell her this. <laughs> Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. He's talking about this plot. For if you remain silent at this time, listen to this. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Who knows but that you are in the position you're in in the palace for such a time as this. Now, this is just filled with some really, really great stuff. And we don't have time to kind of unpack all of it. But let me just mention a couple things. First of all, Mordecai is saying, Esther, the reason it's so important for you to do this isn't because God's only option to save his people is, is you. <laughs> That's not the reason it's so important. The reason it's so important for you is not because, like, God's run out of options and, like, you're it. You're his final one. He's, he's, he's looked here, he's looked here, he's looked here, he's looked here. He's run out of options, and now he's coming to you, and this is the final option. No, the reason this is so important for you to do is not because, like, you are the only option for God to save his people. God is going, Mordecai tells her, God is going to save his people. <laughs> With or without you, Esther, God is going to save his people. I just want you to know that. God is going to take care of this. God is going to save his people. And that's, I think that's such a huge thing for us to realize and to embrace in our lives that God doesn't call us to join in his mission because if we don't, God's mission will fail. God doesn't call us to join in to his mission. The success of God's mission doesn't rest on, on your shoulders. The success of God's mission doesn't rest on my shoulders, even though at times I feel like it does. And probably for you at times, you feel like it does, like you are carrying not just the weight of the world, you are carrying the weight of God's mission on your story, I mean, on your shoulders. And if you don't come through the way that you need to come through and don't respond in exactly the way that you need to respond, that God's mission will fail. And what Mordecai is reminding us of, and we were reminded of this throughout Scripture, you don't have to carry that. Like, you don't have to shoulder that. That God is going to accomplish his mission with or without you. That God is going to accomplish his mission with or without me. Like, God will find a way. God always finds a way. The reason it's so important to say yes to joining with God in his mission is because of what happens to us if we don't. 
When Mordecai tells Esther that she will perish if she doesn't go to the king about what's happening, he's telling her that if she doesn't use her position in the palace for those outside of the palace, if, if she doesn't use her, if she just uses her position primarily for herself to, to maintain what she has, to protect what she has, to make sure she doesn't lose what she has. If she doesn't use her position for those in the palace, for those outside of the palace, palace that eventually it will destroy her. And we're not just talking about like physically. We're just talking about destruction in every way. And, and it does the same thing to us. When we, when we don't use our position in the palace to help those outside of the palace, the palace, this, 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 this position that God has entrusted us with, the palace becomes the source of our own destruction. We become enslaved by the palace. We become enslaved by our resources. We become enslaved by our position. We become enslaved by our success. We become enslaved by our accomplishments. We become enslaved by all of that. We become enslaved by the very things God has entrusted us to steward. Secondly, Mordecai tells Esther that she needs to consider the possibility that the position she is, in, she is in, she has been placed in this position for such a time as this. Now, Mordecai, I mentioned last week, there's nowhere in Esther, it's so interesting, nowhere in Esther that God is mentioned, God's name is never mentioned, there's nothing like religiously mentioned really in the book of Esther. And Esther doesn't explicitly say that God has placed Esther in her position, but that's the implication. He's saying, Esther, God has put you here, and he has given you all of these levers to pull, all of these things that are at your disposal for such a time as this. And all of us face those same moments in our life. Like you may be in the middle of like one of those moments right now, one of those such a time as this moment in your life. They are the moments when God is able to use our position, our influence, our resources, our gifts, our time, maybe something else, whatever it is to advance his kingdom. And just like with Esther, God has uniquely equipped us to participate in his redemptive work in a way that is unique to us and, and what the palace looks like for us and what it represents for us and the resources and, and, and position that he has given us. Like he has uniquely positioned us for that. And, and seizing that moment, this is what we're reminded of with Esther, that seizing that moment often comes with great cost. There, there's usually sacrifice involved when we seize that moment. There's usually risk that's involved when we seize that moment. And that was certainly true with Esther. 
But at this point in the story, Esther is, she's changed. And she is willing to embrace all of that. And this is how Esther ultimately responds to Mordecai's plea. Then Esther said, uh, sent this reply back to, to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. I, 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 I'm about to make a decision and I need you to pray for me and I need you to fast for me. Now that, that's not a, not a bad thing to, to do when you are in the middle of, a, of one of those such a time as this moments. When you are on the verge of seizing a moment that you believe that God has uniquely positioned you to seize, to say, I, I need some folks to surround me with, with prayer and with fasting and, and, and pray that I will have the courage and the boldness to do that which God is calling me clearly. I know that God is clearly calling me to do this. So he says, so gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, fast for me, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do as well. And then when that's done, when we're done praying, we're done fasting, I'll go to the king, I'll seize this moment, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And then, the, then she says this, and if I perish, I perish. Now, here's what's so interesting about that statement here in chapter four. At this point in the story, the Esther of chapters one and two is long gone. Like she has gone through, again, there's no mention explicitly of God in the book of Esther, but the fingerprints, the handprint of God is all over this. And Esther is experiencing God's transforming work in her life. And the Esther we see at the end of chapter four and the Esther that we see in the rest of the book is not the Esther that we see in chapters one and two, praise the Lord. There is transformation that has taken place in her life. She is a different person. And when she says, if I perish, I perish, she is proclaiming that she is willing to risk it all in order to do what she is uniquely positioned by God to do. 14 times in the book of Esther, Esther is referred to as Queen Esther. 14 times. 13 of those times, it's after she says this. 13 times. Most of the times when she's referred to, not just as Esther, but as Queen Esther, it's after she has said, if I perish, I perish but I am seizing this moment that God has placed before me, this opportunity to have impact that God has placed before me. She becomes, I love this, she becomes a person of greatness not by trying to be a person of greatness. She becomes a person of greatness by being willing to lay down her greatness. And the same is true for us. Esther is this beautiful example of what it looks like to use your position in the palace, whatever the palace represents for you, to use your position in the palace to help those that are outside the palace, those that 
that need that. If you're kind of going, what's the definition of those that are outside the palace? Here's the definition. The definition of those who are outside the palace are all those in your life that need that which you have. Like whatever it is that God has uniquely positioned you with, resources, time, passion, gift, insights, wisdom, whatever it is. It's the folks who need what you have, what God has entrusted to your care. Those are the ones who are outside the palace. And that God is calling us to use our position in the palace to respond to the needs to serve those who are outside the palace. And Esther is this beautiful example of that. But Esther is more than just an example. And this is so important to to get this point. Esther is more than just an example. Esther is a signpost. You know, we did a whole series on signposts. And we talked about how signposts, they point to something. And Esther is not just an example. We say, oh, I want my life to be like Esther's. Esther is also a signpost. She is pointing to someone. She is pointing to Jesus. She is pointing to the one who has, who has left the palace, who has leveraged the palace, the ultimate palace for those outside the palace. Paul talks about that in Philippians 2. It's one of my favorite passages. It was my brother Gil's absolute favorite passage where Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, did not consider it something to be held onto. To use the palace language, did not consider his position in the palace just being for his gain. But that in fact, he made himself nothing. He took the form and nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul is reminding us that what Jesus did for those on the outside of the palace was not just to put his life at risk like Esther put her life at risk. Jesus didn't just put his life at risk. Jesus actually laid his life down. Jesus didn't just say, if I perish, I perish. Jesus said, when I perish, I perish. And when you realize what Jesus did for you on the cross, it will set you free to live the same way. It will set you free to never again be enslaved by the palace. It will set you free to make sacrifices and to take risks in order to to serve those and help those who are outside the palace because you realize that the things that you possess that matter the most, the things that Jesus provided for you on the cross, forgiveness. Think about all the things that are yours because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Forgiveness, eternal life, an identity rooted in him and not our most recent performance, an inheritance that will never fade. And what is Jesus, what belongs to Jesus belongs to us, an inheritance that will never fade. His presence in the midst of the worst 
storms of life, that he will always be present for you, that all of that, all of that, the most important things you possess because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross can never, ever be taken away. And that gives you the courage and that gives you the boldness that you could never, ever have on your own. It actually takes away the risk because no matter how risky it seems, you know that the things that matter the most can never be taken away from you. Praise the Lord. I invite you today uh, as we end just uh, once again, we're gonna pray together and uh, I'm gonna offer a prayer. And uh, as I pray, I just invite you silently to, um, to make it your prayer as well. You can bow your head, you can close your eyes, you can... You can take whatever posture seems most comfortable for this, but let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the gifts and the talents and the passions and the resources and the influence that you have entrusted to my care. I recognize that you have uniquely positioned me to advance your kingdom. Like Esther, you have placed me in the palace for a purpose. Lord, I repent of times when I've become so enamored by the palace that I have forgotten why I am there and who put me there. I repent of those times when I have used my position in the palace just to advance my own agenda or to maintain my lifestyle or to guard against anyone threatening my position. Lord, thank you for laying down your life for those outside the palace. Thank you for providing forgiveness for my sins. Thank you for saving my life. Thank you for inviting me into the palace. And thank you for coming into this world to serve and not to be served. Like Esther, give me the courage and the boldness to use my position in the palace to do the same. In Jesus' name, I pray. God, here our prayers today. We recognize that we have been gifted by you, graciously gifted by you with so much, so much that you have positioned us to have impact in the world. You have positioned us to make a difference. You have positioned us to bring heaven to earth. You have positioned us to advance your kingdom. Lord, may we not become so enamored by the palace that we are in. That we Where lose you sight are. Maybe of why we are there. And who put us there. 
the name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you so much for listening to the Fairfax Church Podcast. You can find more messages like this on our YouTube channel at Fairfax Church or follow us here. If you were blessed by the message and resources provided, feel free to leave us a review.